What joy it is to rest and to worship on the Sabbath day as the church, whether online or here in person. What joy it is for me and hopefully for you as well. If you're new with us, uh, my name is Soon Pak, one of the pastors, uh, as uh, been referenced. Uh, just sharing a little bit, uh, many of you already know this, we lived in China for a few years as we were serving on a team. And it's funny when you go cross-cultural, when you go to a different place, how there are different rules and uh, the topics you can talk about, things that you would never talk about in this context, uh, somehow become like open game for conversation uh, when you're in a different culture. Uh, I remember many times friends or acquaintances or even students I was working with, uh, they would just remark when they saw me, it's like, oh, you, you've gained some weight recently. Or you're like, oh, you're looking very fat today. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, yes, uh, thank you, I guess. Uh, it's just stuff you wouldn't hear in this context. Uh, another one that was really surprising is when we get in a, in a taxi ride, uh, you know, taxi driver, when they found out I was a foreign English student they, or teacher, they would just say, oh, how much money do you make? And I'd be like, oh, I, I guess that's where this conversation's going on <laughs> this short taxi ride, right? There's stuff you don't really talk about in our context. How many of you talk about finances uh, with your best friend? How many know uh, what your best friend makes, right? Those aren't topics that you normally discuss. Finances aren't a normal part of our conversation in our culture. They're very private. But we know that finances does impact almost every aspect of our lives, where we live, uh, what we do, how we interact with people, and it may be even the most powerful force when we talk about the kind of life that we live. As you saw in our intro, our sermon series kicking off is on finances, making change, making change. And if I'm going to be honest with you all, uh, money and finances in the church is not something I want to talk about. It's probably something you don't want to hear me talk about. Uh, but I would say it does matter when we talk about our context today, why it matters, why we're doing this four-week series is how can we gain, for a follower of Jesus, a biblical perspective on money, a biblical perspective on how money can shape who we are and the kind of lives that we live. That's why we're going to talk about it when we talk about in Scripture how often they talk about finances because it talks about what we love what our orders are and how it shapes who we are. James Smith, uh, author and theologian in his book, You Are What You Love, You Are What You Love, says this, your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. This is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves, which as we've observed, are habits we've acquired through the practices we're immersed in. That means the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. I might be learning to love a telos or end goal that I'm not even aware of and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. What he's saying is that what we love becomes the driving force of our actions, whether we know it or whether we don't. What we love, the love that we have in our life, governs us, what we comfort, what secures us, the joys it provides us. It actually drives our actions and practices on what we do, whether we know it or we don't. As they say, money makes the world go around. And for the next four weeks, what we're going to do is look under the hood. We're going to lift a hood, look under the hood for four themes to allow God to shape our view of money that glorifies God and the people that we serve. We're going to take four weeks to lift the hood, to look under the hood, see what God's perspective is on money and how we live our lives and how we can benefit others. Four themes we're going to explore. 
Less is more, which is today. Stress is bad, giving is good, and tomorrow matters. Less is more, stress is bad, giving is good, and tomorrow matters. Four themes that are going to explore a biblical perspective on finances. Today, we're going to focus on less is more. Less is more. Less is more. Say it with me. Less is more. Now, I want to... I want to preface saying this is not a sermon. If you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling it's starting to tighten up, this is not a sermon against wealth. It's not a sermon against gaining money. It's not even a sermon about having, being rich. The Bible talks about being rich and wisdom uh, in great ways, especially in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 8 says this, With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. Talking about people who are with God. Uh, The next one, 13, trouble pursues the sinner, but the righteous are rewarded with good things. Proverbs 21, whoever pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. Life, prosperity, honor. So there's this theme in the Old Testament that the, the wise person, not the fool, the wise person, God rewards with good things and there's prosperity. But then we have some other things in there. In Timothy, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, there's a pretty famous uh, verse. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is the part you may be aware of, uh, whether you're in the church or not in the church, you've heard this before. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, what God is doing between these two frameworks is trying to give us a healthy perspective on how we can live a more flourishing life, more than what the world offers, and even more what our carnal hearts desire, this this life that God has for you, a flourishing life that practically guides you in how you manage your finances. Our theme today is helping resolve that tension a little bit. Less is more. See, a life that's not trying to grab everything that we can, nor a life that we have nothing to pursue and we just sit around. But we're going to unpack this less is more theme through our text in Ecclesiastes. The first challenge we're going to face is this. More is not better. More is not better. You may know it in your head, but we're going to really dive deep. More is not better. Verse 10, as we heard earlier. Whoever loves money and never has enough. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. This famous section in Ecclesiastes is trying to figure out the purpose of life. He thinks it's about acquiring things and he says this too is meaningless. There's a famous story about John Rockefeller. Uh, you may have heard it before, and he talks about how uh, he was probably one of the most rich people, rich, one of the most rich people in all of history. At one point, his wealth accumulated to almost 2% of the whole U.S. Uh, GDP. He was a very rich person. In an interview, they asked him this question, how much do you think is enough? How much do you think is enough? And he said very famously uh, this line that you may have seen before, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Now, while you and I may not relate with uh, Mr. Rockefeller, I think our hearts can relate with his answer. Just a little bit more. So a quick survey for you guys. Quick survey. You don't have to raise your hand. Just in your heart, answer this question. How many of you, assessing in your heart, how many of you think you have too much money? How many of you guys, when you think through your retirement fund, 
your income, your net wealth. How many of you are sitting here like, man, I have too much. I, I really don't need any more. I have way too much. You can, if you are raising your hand in your heart, talk to me after. I have some things uh, you could give to. Now, I'm going to ask a flip question. How many of you guys think in your heart, when you examine your heart right now, honestly, and get to a place saying, if I just had a little bit more, things would be okay. See, I, I'm, I'm not greedy. I don't want all of it. I just need a little bit more. See, no matter how much or how little wealth you've accumulated so far in your life, we all want a little bit more. It's in our hard wiring that we want to believe that more is better. One is good, the two is a lot better. Just a little bit more, just for a better life for me, for you, and even for the people that you are around. And when you feed into that desire for more, just a little bit more, it ultimately leads you down a path where it's going to ask you to choose allegiances. See, once you start taking that path towards a little bit more, just a little bit more, it calls for a life of devotion and allegiance. And Jesus says it this way in this famous way. He says, no one can really serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And in this context, Jesus says, you cannot serve both God, and what does it say? And money. That little bit more. You can't serve God and money. He makes a very clear distinction in who you can serve. See, it's that word devoted that gets me. The more you devote yourself to wealth, the more it consumes you. We live in a consumeristic society. Like it or not, our culture is consumeristic. See, the books you read, the articles you read, uh, even the, the programming you watch, the advertisements you watch, the people you even interact with are all feeding your consumeristic appetites, whether you like it or not. That's what the purpose of marketing and advertisement is, and it fuels us, either consciously or unconsciously, we're giving into that consumeristic devotion, and more wealth is better for you. That's why we feel it when we say just a little bit more. Bishop Metropolitan Jonah, in his address to a flock of bishops, he says, consumerism is perhaps the most powerful of all tools of secularism to relativize faith and religion, and subject to them ever more trendy relevant relevant of consumerist gratification. And what he was saying is this, and what we all know to be true, is this world offers more and more and more, and it robs us, and it robs us of the gifts that God has given. See, what it does is it reduces the gifts of God, mainly money and wealth, which is the gift of God we see in Scripture, to a never-ending addiction of more. We become insatiable for it. And we get tempted to believe if we just had a little bit more, all our problems will go away. This past week I read this line and I thought it was brilliant. It says, money isn't the solution to your problems. And it only lets you carry your unhappiness around in style. Isn't that clever? More money, is, more money in your life is not better. More money will not solve your happiness issues or discontent issues. Numerous studies have shown over and over again that the more money you make doesn't equate to more happiness. Actually, the more money you make, there's actually an inverse reaction to, inverse response to your happiness. The more money you make, you actually become less happy and more discontent. More is not better. And that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to remind us, that if we give in to our insatiable appetite for more, it'll never, never, never be enough. Wherever, forever chase that hunger in us for more, 
And we realize that it's not a hole that we're trying to fill up, but a pit that's constantly consuming that desire. But once again, I wish it was that simple, that it's just a knowing issue. But we know when we think about money, especially money, it's closely related, tied to our heart, which comes to our second point. More is not better, but two, that even when we try to seek better things, our eyes betray us, that our eyes actually betray us. Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on, to feast their eyes on them? The worst thing for some of us is for God to give us exactly what we want. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, there are two types of people in the world. One group of people that look to God and say, thy will be done. The other group of people where God looks at them and says, thy will be done. As we turn our focus towards wealth, the author challenges the reader, what benefit it is to the eyes for all the gain that they seek. We've already established that money doesn't buy happiness, but it also doesn't buy love, joy, and peace, especially not righteousness, mercy, and justice. What it does buy is something that appeals to our eyes. What it does buy is something that appeals to our eyes, that our eyes get lured in by the things around us, the higher number in our bank account. And what what he's trying to say is not just our physical eyes, because all through scripture and the ancient Near East, Eyes were closely related to our heart and soul, very, our innermost being. The eyes are a lamp to the body, that our eyes are so intimately connected to our hearts. There was a study in 1997, uh, Dr. Arthur Aaron, uh, he had this study where he said, hey, can we get a group of strangers, uh, bring them together and help make them fall in love? In 97, he gathered all these strangers and tried to get them to fall in love. And what he did is uh, he gathered all these people in couples and asked them a lot of questions. And what he did is he broke them down and said, I want you guys to stare at each other's eyes for four minutes with no interruptions, four minutes of eye contact. And that's what we're going to do here for the next four minutes. You could, no, I'm kidding. Uh, you should try that at home. Because studies have shown that intimacy actually increases when all you're doing is just looking in each other's eyes. Because we know it's connected to our hearts. That something happens when we're connected, when we make eye contact. Did it work? Uh, one of the couples six months later got married, invited uh, the doctors to attend. So it, there is some elements of truth in the study. And I do encourage you guys uh, to try that. If you're married or you have a, um, uh, a boyfriend or girlfriend, try it out. It, it'd be a fun, interesting thing to do. See, there is a deep connection between our eyes and our heart. But the danger is it's so closely rated but our eyes get deceived so quickly. Their eyes do betray us. What we see is not necessarily what we truly need in our lives. And it can trick into believing something that just isn't true. It just feasts your eyes. If I just had a little more money, I'd, just, I'd be more generous. If I just had a little more money, I, that way I can have more time with my family and friends. If I just had a little more money, I'd be more compassionate than other people Focus. If I had just a little bit more of me, I'd be a little bit less stress. We know those aren't true. Psychologist Paul Piff in his study on greed actually says this. He says, as a person's levels of wealth increase, 
their feelings of compassion and empathy go down. And their feelings of entitlement, of deservingness, and their ideology of self-interest increases. Same things we were talking about earlier, is that our eyes betray us when we look at the things in the world we'd want. More money, more things. But Jesus... And scripture talks about giving us new eyes to see the world. New eyes to look at our finances and resources. That's the whole story of the Bible. Our eyes are deceived, but God gives us a new eyes. Our hearts are deceived and desperately broken, and he gives us a new heart. In the story in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus appoints 72 of his disciples, and he sends them out for kingdom purposes. He says the, the harvest is plenty, but we need workers to go. And he sends out 72 equipped to carry the good news of the gospel to all the villages uh, in his community. And as he, as he prepares the 72 to go, he says, don't take anything with you. Don't take any money. Don't take anything that could help you, but just go. And as they go, there's probably some apprehension and fear, but yet they go in faithfulness to their Lord. And the beauty is when they come back and share of all the things that God used them for, It says they came back with joy filled with the Holy Spirit. And listen to what in verse 23, what Jesus says, Luke 10, 23. It says, as they've come back and sharing these stories, then he turned to his disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what they see, what you see. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. See, Jesus was showing them a new way to look at the world, a new way to look at the resources that they had in their lives. Dear friends, brothers and sisters, blessed are your eyes who do not feast on fleeing, uh, fleeting wealth of more, but on the contentment that only God can provide. Followers of Jesus, let us not fall into the temptations of this world for more and let our eyes get betrayed for what things they want to tantalize us with, but on the joy that only God can give us. So what does that mean practically in this section? It means this, is that uh, it does not mean we don't need money. This is not what the sermon's about. Money is still a tool and you may use, as we'll talk about in the next verse. But it does mean that we don't chase it in a way that we want to feast our eyes upon. Bigger house, a nicer car, better things, the latest thing, the newest thing, the things that we want to show off. And third, we need to assess if our eyes are aligned with God to see how our finances and resources uh, are aligned with him. To take pause and evaluate the way we save, spend, and use our money. Is it one with limitations and modesty and prudence rather than extravagance and opulence? Are we always maxing out our budget? Are we living below our means in the way God wants us to? Because it's not talking about giving everything away. There's examples on the scripture, but the heart of the finances that God is trying to communicate to us, how can we use it in a way that is within God's limit and scope, a biblical worldview of finances? And what the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to say is this, that there is a better way. That tension you feel, feeding that desire for more and knowing that ours deceive us, he's saying there is a better way. He says in verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. So we finally get to the point of uh, this, uh, these verses by the author. While less is more in God's perspective, 
we tend to think the opposite. If we just get enough, then it's going to give us this life, life to the full that Jesus promises. We think it's only if we can get more and more and more. But what God is saying, it's not that way at all. It's not that way at all in God's world. And like I shared, you know me, we have four children. My wife and I, we have four children, nine, eight, four, and one. I don't remember a lot of things that happened this past decade because uh, raising our children. But uh, one of the things we, that people always uh, give us advice, whether a parent or grandparent, right before we have uh, uh, give birth, Aaron gives birth to a child, they always come and tell us, you know, you know, try to get as much sleep as you can because afterwards, you know, you know, right? You don't get a lot of sleep that first year, Lord willing, uh, hopefully by that year, the, the child sleeps a little better. But, you know, I was sleep deprived for a lot of it. So one of the blessings uh, that I received on our eight-year eight year wedding anniversary, we were serving in China, and our teammates said, you know, we'll take your two kids at the time, Levi, who was two and a half, Titus, who wasn't even one yet, and they said, you know, we'll take them for the night. Why don't you go out, you know, go to a restaurant, uh, stay overnight at a hotel, enjoy yourselves. So Aaron and I, uh, we went out, we went to a restaurant, we got to a hotel, and you know what we did? We slept all night. <laughs> slept like a baby. And it was glorious. <laughs> Best wedding anniversary ever. For three years, you know, we just hadn't slept all through the night, and it was a beautiful, beautiful moment for us. See, our world glorifies busyness and overworking. We're taught to always take on more responsibilities, to move up, to take that promotion, because then you know what? You're going to earn more if you step up. You're going to get more, 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 and more. The world preaches that to us. You know why I know this? The next time someone's how you're doing, tell them you're not busy at all and see their response on their face. See how, their bo- how your boss responds. We glorify busyness and overworking. What for what? The fuller life, the restful life, so you can have more and be at peace? Absolutely not. How are we doing? Number one cause of people not being able to sleep at night in America, the issues around money. Some of us just need a good night's sleep. Not just in the physical sense, but in that deep way that God offers for his people. The deep way the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to convey to his people and us today. It's, it's not a message about giving money away or using your money for things. It's really talking about for those who labor and earn their wages according to God's glory. But how can we in that way not get caught up in the pursuit of money, but get caught up in God's economy, God's economy. 20th century Chinese evangelist uh, Li Changshou uh, wrote concerning the economy of God in 1 Timothy 1, 4. He talks about the economy of God, and he says this, God's economy is God's dispensation, which means nothing else than God dispensing himself into the human race. And what he's unpacking is what we find in Philippians in Scripture. He says this, who, Jesus, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Something you use, yeah. But rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That's God's economy. Jesus, who was rich in every sense of the word. Jesus, who had all things as God himself, emptied himself so he could bring you into a relationship with him and for his labor. If you think about it for a second, if you think about it from an economic sense, if you think about it, it's the most unfair, unequitable, irrational trade in all of eternity. 
None of it makes sense that Jesus would empty himself, trade all that he had for you to give you what? The full life. John says life and life to the full. God wants to give you good things. God wants you to use your finances, but not for this rat race we feel in our hearts all the time, not to feed our appetite for more, but the full life that God has. So first, what does that leave us? One is this. If you've, if you've received that gift that God has given you in that salvation sense, that God empties themselves and is giving them to you so you could be in a right relationship with God, what it frames us is in a life of gratitude, whether you have little or a lot, God frames us to live a life of gratitude. Every day we wake up, we thank God for the blessings. We thank God for the resources. We thank God for our jobs. We thank God for our children. And we live a life of gratitude for what he's given us. And we're thankful for the salvation of Jesus that he's offered to us in his son. Second, awareness of the propensity of our heart's desire to pursue money to feed our never-ending appetite. Where that leaves us in God's economy is that we have to be aware that there's something in us and the things feeding into us that's always trying to encourage us to feed our appetite for more, that we're never going to feel that we have enough. We always want a little bit more. And third, to work and earn money in a way that magnifies God's glory in his work in this world and at the same time lessen our stressful dependence on it. See, what the author is trying to convey us in this tension of wanting more and our eyes betraying us, there's this better way where he says, can we earn and live a way that honors God and the work he has for us at the same time lessening our stressful dependence on money? And Jesus says, yes, if you follow him, make him Lord, where it's not about freely getting whatever you want, but one with limits, with guidance, that we live a life where we can leverage it for the glory of him and the mission he has for us. That's what he's calling us into. This is the good life that Jesus promised, where truly less is more in his world. Let's pray. God, thank you for the goodness of your grace, Lord, that you sent your son, Jesus, Father, in the ultimate sacrifice to live a life and to die to death, all for us, to give us righteousness and to take upon your sinfulness, to take upon our sinfulness upon him. And in return, we get to be called a son and daughter. So, Father, for everyone in this room who has yet to take that step of faith, I pray that we can open our hearts and answer the call that you have given them to step in faith in a right relationship with you. And Father, in that, that when we step in, it's not just about you and I, you and us, but it's about the world itself, that you call us into a mission and call us into a work, Lord, that where before we were, we were consumed with self-interest and self-identity, uh, now we can be uh, God-focused and God-centric, Father, and you call us to love you and love our neighbor as ourselves. And the work before us, let us leverage our wealth, resources, and finances for your glory and your beauty to the ends of the earth. Give us an alignment, a biblical worldview on how you want to use the gifts that you've given us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.